The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The following production is part of the We Be Geeks Podcast Collective. From days long ago, from uncharted regions of the universe, comes a legend. The dream that came through a million years, that lived on through all the tears. It came here, the Fandom Nexus. Fabulous secret powers were revealed to our host as he plugged in his microphone. I have a podcast! Here he is, your Spider-Pan, Jeremy. Yes, friends, I am back. I meant to be back last weekend, but things didn't quite work out the way I had planned. I have been kind of busy. We're preparing for a holiday and I'm trying to adjust for the um, the time change where I'm getting home from work, and it is way past dark when I'm getting home because I do work about an, you know, an hour away from home. Uh, so I'm getting home, and it's been dark for a long time, and I'm just feeling tired when I get home and I eat something and I go to bed. Plus, I've been working a lot of late nights. Other than, otherwise, I'm preparing. To, I'm actually taking next week off for the holiday, so I've been trying to make sure all my projects are taken care of before I leave. And so that's keeping me very, very, very busy. And I've even had some late night projects, uh, working on some news stories with some of the news, uh, you know, like the news director and some of our reporters at KQ2. So I've been very busy this week, getting home late, uh, or either that or being just too tired or just not in the right mood to record this thing. But really, this show is mostly done. Uh, a while back, I interviewed Paul McCusker, showrunner for, uh, well, current showrunner for Adventures in Odyssey and been a writer on Adventures in Odyssey. And I'm finally going to get a chance to share that audio this week. So we're going to hear that. Also, though, we do have just a couple of news stories I want to dive into. So basically some tributes and a couple of things I found in the trailer park. Uh, so we need to get right to that Paul McCusker interview. So I'm going to move right on to the next thing. Spanning the Disney and Geek Universe to bring you the best in comics, toys, movies, and entertainment. This is news from around Neverland. All right, so I'm going to take this information really from the New York Times website. This was written up by Douglas Martin uh, Gallagher, who became one of the most recognizable comedians of the 1980s for an outrageous act that always concluded with him smashing a watermelon with a sledgehammer, died last Friday 
at his home in Palm Springs, California, at the age of 76. Now, uh, he proclaimed himself the Wizard of Oz and said that his job was to yell at the world. Uh, I, I think I owe some of my smart aleck uh, sense of humor to Gallagher because he was able to observe things and make fun of them, like uh, how I, I, he's gotten a bit on how the English language is weird when you start to learn to count and you learn the words for counting. One, O-N-E, where's the what in one? There is no what there. We go to two and there's a what you don't need because it's right in the middle of the word and then we don't say two. We say two, so why don't we take that W out of there and put it on the other one? But now that two has become a whole different word, because now it's two. Uh, but he's he's had very observational stuff, did a lot of funny, very inventive props for good jokes. Uh, but he was a very, very funny guy. Uh, I think he's uh, he kind of disappeared there for a while. Uh, I, I think even for a while his brother tried to grab his act. But what, of course, he was most known for is it's not a dicer, it's not a slicer, what is it? It could possibly be Sledge-O-Matic. Uh, and he would pop out with this big wood sledgehammer and smash all kinds of different things, starting with apples between two patented pans. Uh, he was a very, very funny guy, very clever. Um, I don't know if there's really any audio I can necessarily share with you, uh, but let me share a little bit, because he, occasionally he would swear, and so uh, I'm careful about that. But let me share just a little bit that's actually on this New York Times article. I came here to sell you something. I want you to pay particular attention. Because the amazing Master Tool Corporation, a subsidiary of Fly-By-Night Industries, has entrusted who? Me. To show you the handiest and the dandiest kitchen tool you've ever seen. And don't you want to know how it works? Yeah! Well, first, you get out an ordinary apple or two. You place the apple between. Fatten the pan. Then what do you do, gang? It's simple. You reach for the tool. It's not a slicer. It's not a dicer. It's not a chopper and a hopper. What in the hell could it possibly be? There you go. You get the idea. And he would do that at the end of every show. He'd smash stuff. There's even one time that he got toothpaste. And uh, <laughs> he, he smashed uh, a toothpaste. And it was AIM toothpaste. And he aimed the nozzle right out there. And people in the front rows, uh, front few rows, would actually have plastic or whatever down so they could you know, try to have that, you know, the food and stuff hit them and not uh, themselves. So... Uh, there's even an article that says much of Mr. Gallagher's humor was based on wordplay. I don't know why they say you have a baby. The baby has you. If pro is the opposite of con is progress, the opposite of Congress. But he also imprided himself on being outrageous and even offensive, defying political correctness. Deaf people, he said, should be required to live near airports. Many people, especially in his later years, felt the jokes about racial groups, gay people and women cross the line. People don't have sense of humor these days. Okay. He's not trying to be mean. He's just being funny about it. So, yeah, he had a great sense of humor. But, yeah, if, if he came around today, there probably would be people who are going to be just all offended about everything he did. But uh, he was very funny back in his time. All right, the other passing away. And oh my, my mouse is not replying to me. Come on, mouse. I need to get over to the next big one. And you knew this was coming, I'm sure. We have to dedicate this show to Kevin Conroy, American actor, best known of his portrayal of the DC Comics superhero, Batman and various animated media beginning with the 1990s Batman the Animated Series, spin-off TV series that came off of that, uh, and many feature films in the DC Animated Universe. And of course, we cannot forget the Batman Arkham and Injustice video games. Apparently, Mr. Kevin had cancer and passed away from that. Uh, I, I did get to see him, I believe, at a convention, at a panel, but I don't know that I have any audio of it. I tried to look through my archives. I don't seem to have it. And if I have not used it in the show, I wonder if perhaps I didn't um, 
get a chance to work, to use it, you know, when I had the audio and maybe I hadn't used it yet, or I just flat out lost it when uh, my previous hard drive went kaput. I don't know. I'm not sure what all happened there. Uh, but I, I thought I had audio of him, but I don't. But I did find some good audio that he had shared on Instagram, and I'm going to share that with you. All right, so uh, a little fun things about Kevin Conroy. He was born, of course, November 30th, uh, so he was actually coming up on his 67th birthday. Uh, 1955 in Westbury, New York, into an Irish Catholic family. Moved to Westport, Connecticut when he was about 11 years old and had three older siblings. He moved to New York City in 1973, where he earned a full scholarship to attend Juilliard School's Drama Division, studying under actor John Hausman. While there, he roomed with Robin Williams, who was in the same group as both Conroy and Kelsey Grammer. After graduating from Juilliard in 1978, he toured with Hausman's acting group, The Acting Company. The following year, he went on the national tour of Ira Levin's Death Trap. Now, he actually had some t- some television roles, did a lot of theater, uh, even was pretty well known for, for Hamlet and Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, before finally landing the role that would define him as Batman. And he really loved being Batman, loved coming to conventions, loved meeting the fans. Uh, He told a really good story on um, Rob Polson's podcast about helping in the uh, kitchens to serve the firemen uh, after the 9-11 incident, uh, 9-11-01, for those of you who might not have lived through it, who might be younger, Uh, everything that happened there. He was was serving food for the first responders uh, overnight, actually. And uh, someone had rec- kind of recognized his voice or something and thought his name sounded familiar, and he says, well, I'm Batman. And the guy, that guy went and told everybody in the cafeteria-type area and says, hey, Batman, sir, you wouldn't believe who's serving us food. It's Batman. And people didn't believe him, and so they had Kevin Conroy come out to, to uh, prove it, and he did his famous line. Uh, that is my phone going off in the background. Uh, he did a famous line, I am Vengeance, I am the Knight, I am Batman. And everybody's like, whoa, it's Batman! So... So that was kind of the fun part of that. So uh, he will be missed. He did have a great impact on many of our lives, especially as, you know, Batman fans. All right. I do have a couple of trailers to share with you. So let's get right to do. I forgot even which trailers I had. One bit of news I do want to share is I just found out that there is a kind of updated version of Oregon Trail that uh, has released for the Nintendo Switch. I don't know if it's released on other systems. I'm going to investigate that and maybe uh, maybe I've played it by the next time we speak. Uh, but I, there was a new trailer for the uh, Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio film. So let's have a listen to that. I want to tell you a story. It's a story you may think you know, but <laughs> you don't. Over there! What is that? Papa! <gasps> it speaks! He's just a puppet! No, I'm not! I'm a real boy! People are sometimes afraid of things they don't know. I don't understand! Ah! We have found him! Our star! Everyone shall love you and call your name Pinocchio! Pinocchio! have something I'd like to give you. It is a school book which belonged to a very special boy. The boy you lost? Papa! Enough of this nonsense. Hey, where are you going? You tell him I love him. And I won't be a burden anymore. 
the wooden boy with the borrowed soul. While you may have eternal life, your loved ones, they do not. You never know how long you have with someone until they're gone. The boy loves you for who you are. Guide him to be good. Such a wonderful gift. <laughs> this is rated PG, coming to Netflix on December the 9th. It says in the description here on their official trailer on YouTube, people are sometimes afraid of what they don't know. From the mind of Academy Award-winning filmmaker Guillermo del Toro and award-winning stop-motion legend Mark Gustafson, it's Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. It's a story you think you may know, but you don't. And I, uh, I'm i sure it's, it might have something to do with the fact most people think the story of Pinocchio resembles the Disney film. Uh, not really. Not if you've read the book or gone through it. I don't know that this really resembles the book either. Uh, so it's a different take, and it, but it just looks really good. Uh, so I'm interested in seeing that this film when it comes onto Netflix. Also coming to Netflix, uh, I'm not going to talk about it or play the trailer, but Senior, uh, Robert Downey Jr. has made a documentary about his father, who was a filmmaker, uh, but it's going to have an R rating on it probably for some language, and plus they're going to get into, I think, RDJ's um, drug use and uh, some of that. So uh, I'm not going to dive into that one, but that's something else coming to Netflix very soon that you might be interested in watching. But I have another trailer for you. Uh, and this one, very appropriate. Uh, happy Life Day, by the way. And also, the, the day I'm recording this, it's Mickey Mouse's 94th birthday. So there is a trailer on, on you know, I bet this is actually on Disney Plus right now. But it's called Mickey, Story of a Mouse. Three simple circles, a quarter and two dimes, probably the most universal symbol ever created by man. Or mouse. <laughs> what is it about Mickey Mouse? Mickey Mouse to me is light. There's like a lot of dark in the world, and he's hope. It's magical to be able to channel all of our hopes and dreams, the innocence that we eventually lose and would like back. Never lose sight of one thing that it was all started by a mouse. The story of Walt and Mickey wasn't just one continual success after success. It was stumble after stumble. Mickey Mouse started in the Roaring Twenties, but almost immediately the Depression fell. You have groups saying, we want Mickey to help get us through World War II. The American dream has suffered, but Mickey is able to bring that back. Just like America splits in the 60s, Mickey Mouse splits as well. And those coexist in this one character. If you have an issue with authority, Mickey Mouse is your guy. Mickey has taken the world by storm. This is something otherworldly. He gets so big that he becomes this reflection of who we are. How is that even possible with this <laughs> little mouse? 
What would a culture from another planet think of seeing Mickey on everything? They might say, take me to your leader, and it would be Mickey. <laughs> he had become this divine figure that you didn't mess with. We began a process to bring Mickey forward. He's everywhere. 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 <laughs> it's overwhelming. Like, leave me alone. Oh, oh no. Okay, let's do that again. <laughs> Mickey is a thing we all share. There aren't many of those around. Almost a hundred years later, after all the things that Mickey has been through, he's still here. We love a mouse. How crazy is that? That's a little absurd. You've always been my best friend. Streaming only on Disney Plus. And that is now streaming. That is as as of the time of this recording, it is live on Disney Plus. On uh, that's something else I will try to watch. I got a lot of things I'm planning to watch next week as I'm on vacation, like planes, trains, and automobiles. I'm going to catch up on Andor, watch the Santa Clauses, watch the Christmas Story Christmas uh, movie, the sequel on HBO Max. I got a lot of things I'm going to watch. And then so next episode, we'll uh, dive into my thoughts on a lot of stuff I'm going to watch next week. But for this week, let's listen to Paul McCusker. Will you stop this foolishness? What foolishness would you like to see? All right, so Neverlanders, we actually have another great special guest. This is a kind of a continuing series. I don't know if I'm going to go any further than three at this point, but another writer from Adventures in Odyssey. And uh, I think you were at one point were a showrunner, uh, if I think remember correctly. But we have Paul McCusker on here, who's been around for 35 years now for Adventures in Odyssey, coming this November. Holy cow. Wow. Yeah, that's true. And that's me. Thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> well, thanks. And, and thanks for sharing your cat with me. I see him in your window. <laughs> oh, is it? Oh, my god. There gosh, was a cat back is... there. And the, oh, that's oh, not okay. a window. That's the thing. See, those of you that are. Oh, no, well, he's back okay, there. He's we back have there. cats. And, they, <laughs> and, and somehow when I'm on screen and I'm doing something like this, their senses come into play <laughs> and they want to be in here, part of whatever's going on. So I actually. Put up a divider thingy and try to block them. <laughs> I had, uh, we have three cats. I had to put them all in different rooms and they're all eating. And eventually they're going to one out, but hopefully yep. my wife will wake up from her nap and she can get that. Yeah, so, we, yes, we were never supposed to be a three cat family, but that's what we turned into. <laughs> yeah, and that's having three cat families how I've gotten this just this morning. One oh, cat, fun. One cat was on my lap. Another cat wanted to come and sit next to me. I start to pet the cat that's sitting next to me. The cat on the lap decided to pounce on the cat sitting next to me. Got me instead of the cat and ripped a nice one into my finger this morning. Okay, I'll show you. <sighs> I've never shown this. So where they tend not to do me damage, but they do my clothes oh. damage. I've got this sweater mm. that now has holes because they are very affectionate. But when they they need yeah. That. Now these sweaters and all my other sweaters are fine, but for some reason, this particular make, <laughs> I look like a character from Sanford and Son. For those of <laughs> you know what that means, so um, oh, there's yeah. the big one. Yeah. So anyhow, is this what we're talking about? Yeah, we're going to talk a bit more about the craft of writing. Uh, we'll start like how you got started writing. Did you used to write when you were a kid? Just had that compulsion, like you always wanted to tell stories. Yes, that's the short answer. Um, as long as I can remember, and going back to, I guess at the point, as soon as I could read and write, I began to write and wanted to, uh, I don't know what the compulsion is and what triggered it, because I didn't really have anybody else in my family that was like that, but I started writing as soon as I could write, 
started writing create uh, creatively, you know, poems and drawing. I wanted to actually be a cartoonist, like uh, mm. do comics. When I was in sixth grade, I did do these goofy little comic books, but uh, mostly. I, I I just couldn't figure out how to do, do the boxes, so I gave up. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, it, it, it's a weird compulsion that goes back to a very early age. Yeah, I can relate. In middle school, when I was when I was drawing my own superhero characters and my own little comics, <laughs> yeah. totally understand that. I thought yeah, I was going to be a comic artist first, too. <laughs> I did my first, um, well, not really a play, but this lengthy sketch when I was in fifth grade and my teacher actually allowed us to perform it um, uh, for recess hmm. during recess. Those who wanted to stay in from recess and watch us do this play were allowed to, but she allowed me to do it. And that was my first experience with, I don't know, writing for the stage. So I think when we actually performed, it was more just being silly. Nobody, <laughs> nobody remembered what the thing was. So, <laughs> So, yeah, it's a weird, it's very strange. I can't explain it, but it goes back a long way. Yeah, that's, it seems to be the way. You just can't stop yourself. But yeah. I did find uh, with, uh, with the little small comics that I would draw, I didn't really have much room to actually tell any good stories. I could just like, okay, we'll have an incident happen because I've got like four pieces of paper folded over, which gives me about eight pages to try to draw something on, and I was never really that good of an artist. Yeah. So, yeah. so expanding from like that... Um, What's it like when you when you started in the medium where you're doing like radio drama and was uh, were you there during when the, they were they were doing the family portraits or were you had you written some stuff? Yeah, well, before what that? what happened is, um, and the off told uh, story stop me if you've heard this before, um, but the the way it worked is I was grew up in Maryland and then because of my writing I was writing scripts and stage stuff. Um, Chuck Bolte and the Jeremiah people came through uh, our town in the 70s. And Jeremiah people was like the only drama touring group, the Christian touring group that was going on anywhere. And they came to our church like every year. And I was really interested in what they were doing. And then the short compressed version is I met him. Then we got to stay in touch. And then I started writing sketches for my church. And... I sent some of those sketches to him just to see what he thought of them. And he really liked them and said, you know, uh, I don't know how it's going to happen, but you and I are going to work together at some point. <laughs> and fast forward a few years later to 1985 and circumstances in my life in Maryland changed and allowed me to actually move to Southern California to work with Chuck at what was Continental Ministries. Well, Chuck was also consulting with Focus on the Family when they started to do just a test audio drama. And so Chuck was in um, the very first thing they did called Gone Fishing, where he played a sort of, you know, George Barkley type character who's fishing and meets up with a, an, an older gentleman played by Hal Smith, mm. would later become Wit. So that was the starting point. Now, I didn't have anything to do with that. I think that was 1985, maybe, 86. But Chuck, I remember Chuck telling me that this organization called Focus on the Family was starting to do audio dramas. And was I interested um, because they were looking for writers? And so I said, well, yeah, sure. So I got in touch with them. And my first freelance work with them was in, um, actually, I'm, I think I'm around my anniversary right now from 1986. 
I wrote an, a, a script called My Brother's Keeper for the Family Portraits mm. series. And then that led into Adventures in Odyssey, or Odyssey USA, as it was called yeah. at the time. And um, so I began to freelance for them. And then ultimately, Chuck Bolte went on staff as executive producer. And uh, I, I wound up getting going on staff as well, and then working with Steve Harris and Phil Lawler and Bob Luttrell and the original team. So the, this, when you start, of course, you're, you're writing a script and you, before, before you probably even you know necessarily what actor is going to be doing what, but has the way the actors played the character ever altered the way you wrote a character? You kind of oh, start always. thinking of it differently? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, and that's, that's what we've often tried to explain, that, you know, unless you have somebody coming in for a one-off, so you've written the script, now you're going into the studio report, and you, you want to avoid making a lot of changes in the studio. I mean, you want to go in with a finished script. You just want to change only those things that are categorically not working for some reason. But when you have an ongoing series like Adventures in Odyssey, and you're, you're writing for somebody like um, Connie or a Eugene, and you have someone with the talent of Katie Lee or Will Ryan, and this is true of how Smith is wit, Basically, what would happen from show to show is you'd, you'd write them and then you'd hear how they're playing it. And then you'd hear, wow, this these kinds of lines, these kinds of shows really bring out the best in the character. Or they kind of in how they're delivering, they make you think, oh, I, I, I need to be careful with certain types of things because they don't hit that as well. Their strengths are in other directions. So I'll write for that. And then you get to a point where you're hearing their their voices in your head. I'm, you know, I'm I'm writing for Hal Smith playing Wit. I'm white. I'm writing for Will playing Eugene or whoever, and that's the advantage to I think a serial like Adventures in Odyssey. When you have ongoing characters, you get a chance to intuitively interact with the actor, and the actors are bringing their skill set. Uh, Dave Madden doing, uh, you know, everybody like that. We'd be stupid as writers not to be listening to what they're doing and adjusting the characters as as we go. And that's pretty much what happened with all of them. We wound up um, – um, the characters just – I mean, if you listen to Eugene, for example, in the earlier episodes, and then you just jump well after that, you can, you can hear how the influence of Will Ryan was influencing – how we were writing for the character and then what the character became. Yeah. Eugene is definitely in a, a complete arc of character when you go to that, because the early ones, he's very, not quite stiff, but he's very, oh, yes, well, da, 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 and has this cadence somewhat yeah. to his thing. And then he got warmer and warmer as he kind of grew as a person. And then when he became a Christian, it's like completely changed his perspective as he, it's almost like he went from being Spock to uh I don't know but it's like to having more of well, a Well he was repressed. I yeah. mean he was sort of a repressed character. He you know, as an early character it was, it was like the joke, the sneaker wore tennis shoes. You know, he's just sort of this uh the, oh, sorry, the sneaker the computer the wore computer, tennis shoes, yeah. Sorry, I said that completely wrong. The computer <laughs> wore tennis shoes. Yeah. And and early on it became very clear that as Will was playing him, that there was a greater dynamic to him than just a socially awkward, incredibly brilliant person. Because Will brought in an artistry, he brought in aspects. So suddenly, Eugene went from 
just that, a, a kind of potentially one-dimensional, robotic, socially awkward computer morphed into um, a, a somewhat of a romantic, mm-hmm. uh, a self-awareness of how he was socially awkward, but sort of incapable of knowing what to do about it, which then <laughs> a great, which made a great foil then for Connie. Yeah. Yeah. You see how uh, Connie and Tom and some of the other characters are playing off of him, and and Bernard especially. Right. The way right. they played off of each other just helped develop the character. But still, Eugene, at, at the heart of it, remained Eugene. So even after he became a Christian, he was still essentially Eugene. Mm-hmm. His worldview mm-hmm. was different, and that affected a variety of different things about him. But at the heart of it, he was still Eugene, the yeah. Eugene we yeah. always knew. So that's the dynamic that we didn't want to lose. Um, but again, that's just part of the arc. And if you're going to write, you know, a thousand episodes and have these characters, uh, you, they need somewhere to go. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, you've got to have the parameters of 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 who they are but how do you stretch them what situations do you put them in does the rubber band snap into place like a bart rathbone where no matter what happened to bart or rodney they always went back to being uh themselves without having ever learned a lesson (laughs) whereas connie and eugene and some of the other characters were far more dynamic you got a sense that they were maturing growing and picking up things along the way mm-hmm. so that's part of the dynamic that we were dealing with with the show yeah and it's fun watching yeah. eugene become a father figure there towards the end yes. and, and even connie yeah. as the big sister now she's yeah. kind of almost a little motherly but it's just when you well start and that was that was in part intentional there was a point around the time of uh, you know for me i remember writing especially around um the Ties That Bind series, but even some earlier things where um, when you go all the way back to the Green Ring Conspiracy, the introduction of Penny, for me, the introduction of Penny with the combination of Wooten, suddenly Connie did have to begin to use what she was. She became the straight man. (laughs) That's the funny thing. I mean, suddenly you positioned her over and against these these other characters and she needed to be the responsible one. And suddenly it's like she had to apply all this stuff she'd been learning from wit all that time. And, and, and that to me is part of the fascination with the characters where, you know, your characters a certain way with certain characters, and then you can highlight the silliness or comedy or whatever it is that you want to, or that, that is right for the character. But then you put them in an interaction with other things. And like you said, suddenly Connie's the big sister. Mm-hmm. She had to be responsible because it didn't look like anybody else around her was. Yeah, that's the fun of 35 years. It gets to see the characters grow and mature and then new situations coming in all the time. And especially you've had a variety of children characters that uh, outgrow the character. So, sure. So as the writer, how do you prepare when you know, okay, well, this, this character is about to age out and I still have this story idea. So now I've got to come up with a new child character. What's the process well, it's, like? It really, it depends. I mean, and, and part of this is the, pr- the production aspect because it's kind of like if you think about Peanuts, you know, it's really interesting how they've cast, they've done the casting because they, 
they determined that Charlie Brown had a particular quality of voice. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, you have the visual reinforcement of, of animation. So that's a different dynamic than audio alone. But it's really interesting. You listen to some of the kids that get to play Charlie Brown now, and it sounds like the same kid mm -hmm. who did on Christmas back in 1965. Yep. So there, we have a couple of choices. One was, um, do we allow the characters, these kids, to grow up, and then maybe they move on, maybe they stay in the show less frequently, maybe they kind of the camera comes off of them, and they they're still an odyssey, but we're not telling their stories anymore. Or you say, you know, this is a character that we really don't want to lose. We need to hold on to the character, but we can't have him grow up. It's going to mess everything up if he does, yeah. or she does. So let's see if we can find a voice that matches that. So Matthew Parker is a good example. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so we we switched. We've got more than one actor who's played Matthew Parker, and we needed to, but a lot of people didn't notice. Um, because we at least got in the vicinity of the quality of voice that allowed for the audience to believe that it was still the same character. Mm. So that's how that works. And we just, it's a judgment call that we would make creatively depending on the characters and the situation and where we want to go. So what's it like when, uh, when you're, you're developing a new character and suddenly like, oh, hey, well, Dave Mad's going to come in or when uh, Jack came in and you realize, I know this actor from, you know, from the Partridge family, from sure. Mr. Ed. How does that got, get you kind of exciting when you're writing a character and you see who they're casting? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, obviously when we were casting, there were no surprises. We knew who we were bringing in. The fact that we could get them was mm -hmm. sometimes miraculous to us. We were honored to have them come in. And when Dave Madden came in, he was originally in, I think, the Family Vacation episodes playing a completely different character because we needed to, we weren't sure that he would want to work with us except in a one-off way. I mean, we just didn't know. So we didn't create a character for him until we knew that he really liked doing the show and wanted to stay with it. And then we created a character for him to play on an ongoing basis. Um, and that's sometimes how that worked. But yeah, it could be intimidating to a great degree because you're dealing with uh, great talent, mm -hmm. and you know they're going to bring a lot to the role. They're not just reading the lines. They really are going to inhabit the characters and make the lines, in many cases, uh, funnier than they were or better than they were or create ideas in the studio where you change it a little bit to make it a better line. Um, that's the wonder of working with people like that. Yeah, And there's some there some serious, immense talent's been through. I mean, between Katie Lee and Will Ryan, and now you got Jess Harnell, who... The only person I've ever heard of who can impersonate each individual beetle. <laughs> oh yes, yep. I mean, there's some some amazing talent. Just not only vocally, but the amount of character they can put in is amazing. Right. And their body of work, and just honestly, has just been blessed by just having just great talent to work with, uh, and actors, and then just always had good stories that actually taught a lesson. But that's the challenge question now. How is it you manage to teach a lesson? without coming across as preachy or sounding like we got a heavy-handed agenda going on how how is how do you feel like you accomplish well, that's, that that's the on, that's the ongoing challenge mm -hmm. um, because we would go into shows and i suppose if you listen to the earlier shows uh, one could argue that they were a little bit more teach teach heavy i mean from the beginning our desire was can we tell stories that will teach without kids feeling like they've been taught mm -hmm. um and, and that was a desire, 
but it wasn't always easy to do. I mean, you're dealing with certain subject matters and you're going to have the teaching moments. But as you listen to the show, I think what happened is we we did quite a few episodes or began to do episodes where the teaching was was less obvious. And then we relied on Chris to kind of hit the ball over the net at the mm-hmm. end. She's the one who would who who might just give that scripture verse or something to actually remind the audience that there was a teaching in there. Mm-hmm. But it might have been so subtle they didn't necessarily pick it up in the overt way that they might have been used to. Um, we never lost sight of the fact that we we were a teaching program in the sense that there was a moral base to what we were doing. There was a foundation uh, that we knew that if not the kids, but certainly the parents that were allowing the kids to listen had an expectation that this wasn't just going to be entertainment for the sake of entertaining they can get that almost anywhere um but that it was going to have some meaning to it that would touch on their faith touch on how they were living out their faith uh, at home or at school or whatever but the real trick and i would say all the way through it has been an ongoing challenge from theme to theme to figure out how how do we touch on things in a way that uh, maintains the integrity of the stories, but also makes sure that the theme is, if not so clear that it feels like we've been hitting people over the head with it, but certainly clear enough that there's some degree of a takeaway, mm-hmm. you know, that kids get a takeaway, uh, something if not overtly preaching or teaching, but at least nudge them in the direction of something to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and an early rule for us was if, if we were creating stories with with themes that the average kid would be getting in the average Sunday school class anywhere, then we're not doing our jobs very well. We, we, we need to find a better angle, find something that's going to be more compelling, not to, not to put down Sunday school classes or anything like that, but for every theme we went after, it was always, okay, but what's a fresh take on this? What's a fresh angle that will help it come alive for, for the listeners? So that that's, but I wish I could say we had a formula for it. The fact <laughs> is every project, every episode, everything we work on, it's a whole new set of challenges for what it is we're trying to do. Yeah, and uh, actually we've been very, very well at um, dealing with maybe something that's, Kids are gonna see it going on in the world. You've dealt with some social issues, and you know the there's all there's been a lot of social change in the last uh, twenty years. And uh, Odyssey yeah. has found a way to present. Well, here is a biblical point of view without saying, "Here's what the Bible says, kid." Bang! But just yeah. having stories happen that gets kids to be able to think, and hopefully they're listening with their parents, and they can sit and have discussions with it. But uh, y'all have been very good at that. Well, we, we, we've done, like I said, we've done our best because it's been an ongoing challenge to do it. And a lot of times it's been a question of of not dealing with issues as issues, but dealing with the humanity, the human mm-hmm. aspect, an issue. Because as soon as you try to deal with things strictly as an issue, then it becomes a bit more objectified. But if you take an issue and you say, how does this topic impact people really? Yeah. What is it? do to people? What does it mean to people? Why do, Why should we even care about it? Then um, 
then we're getting into the realm of story and character and the things. And then the themes and, and, and what we're talking about will bubble to the top, as the C.S. Lewis would put it. It sort of uh, bubbles to the top and you get it. But at the heart of it, and I guess that's the phrase I need to use, is whatever the subject is, we were always trying to figure out how to get to the heart of it. Because that was going to be the thing that made for a really good and compelling story, whatever the subject was. Um, and we are also very sensitive to um, and have been sensitive to, to being careful not to do dated topics. Yeah. yeah. Something that's really hot right this minute that everybody's talking about. And our instincts would say, yeah, but you know what? Next year at this time, will anybody even be talking about it? Does anybody care? <laughs> So how do we get to the timeless aspect of it? The thing that five years from now, the way we've handed, handled it will still work in five years. You don't have to remember what was happening five years ago to enjoy the episode or to get meaning from the episode because hopefully we've handled it in a way that makes it as relevant and meaningful in five years or 20 years or 30 years as it was when we wrote it. Which works really well with you have your, in a way, somewhat ageless main characters that, uh, you know, we know Wit was, you know, he was in World War II. We just forget about what year it is yeah. now. And Connie, yeah, yeah, she's maybe only maybe six years and 35 years. So you kind of yeah. keep it that light where Odyssey almost exists in its own little timeline. And so you don't have to have any historical significance of what happened when. And it could just be out there. So it really goes in well, your Well, and that was always the funny thing about it because. You know, when the show started, um, I think it, it started off sort of as an anthology series. And then there was a point where we said, you know, we've got to stop having characters playing different actors, playing different characters. What we really need to do is maybe lock into some of these characters now. Mm -hmm. The actor is no longer somebody different every week, like a Twilight Zone episode or, you know, an anthology series where you have them playing different characters. Now they're going to be jimmy barkley and donna and it's going to be the same one and once once we made that decision we then created a different problem because you had as everybody knows you had connie and eugene and you had certain what you would call the static characters that they weren't really aging and they weren't meant to age but then we had Jimmy and Don, and you had other characters who clearly were aging. <laughs> and then suddenly, suddenly, when you've got a Donna Barkley going, "Oh, I need to, you know, give an address for my senior class or whatever," and Connie is still in some mythical tenth grade, it's like, is she just failing? <laughs> you know, what is she doing? You know, and my theory early on, I I just wanted to introduce the idea that we find out late in the show that Connie is actually. Uh, an Android thing, uh, Android that Wit invented, but never told anybody. And she's so human that nobody even questions the fact that it's 35 years later and she hasn't aged. <laughs> so we're either doing that or it's going to be like the Dread Pirate Roberts, you know, oh, where yeah. you know, just keep handing it off to somebody who puts on the mask and becomes the other character. Oh, so, no. so we had growing characters, we had static characters, and suddenly the timeline of Adventures in Odyssey, you just pretty much let it go. <laughs> you, you just realized, you know, this show is what it is, and we will just, in our world, we'll just roll along with the time as, as it appears to be, whatever that may be. <laughs> 
Okay, so okay. first to wrap this up, I got a softball something because you mentioned you were you know drawing and making your little comics when you were younger. What sort of comics were you reading at the time? Were you more into the funny comics or uh, were you a Marvel or a DC guy? You know, it really it varied. I um, as a kid, I, you know, I didn't read a lot of comics. I mean, we had them, um, but I rem- I remember it now, and it's an excellent question because nobody's asked me that. I mean, it's funny because I remember reading Archie. I enjoyed the Archie comics. I remember um, enjoying Spider-Man. Woohoo! Um, I was a Batman fan, Aquaman fan, Superman fan. Uh, so I guess I was somehow in the DC world more than Marvel. Though, um, gosh, Submariner, now that you even mentioned it. I kind of liked Iron Man and Submariner and some of these other characters, but only infrequently, um, haphazardly. I was not a die-hard, into it, knowing everything that was going on kind of fan. I think I just read them as they came my way or I saw something interesting. And as soon as I could get into books, like when I was in sixth grade, fifth into sixth grade, I had a scholastic book, which I still have, called Torpedo Run by Rob White. And it was about um, uh, PT boats. Hmm. And I loved McHale's Navy, the TV show. <laughs> so I was into PT boats. And then I got this novel. And in my mind, that was my first grown-up novel. So that was fifth, sixth grade. And at the point when I discovered books, I really moved away from comics i mean i still would read them as they came my way but they they were not like the priority for me uh reading the books to definitely took over so other than the bible what would be your favorite book uh that's a that's a tough one i'm, <laughs> I'm better off trying to think of of authors i mean I, I was a fan of 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 mark twain and his style of writing um I also loved the supernatural stuff. I was a fan of Dark Shadows books because I was a fan of the TV series back when it was on. And um, which is one of the sweet parts that um, if if you know Green Ring Conspiracy and the character of Skint, Mr. Skint is played by David Selby, who was in the Dark Shadows TV show. Hmm. And I had been wanting to work with him for years and years and years and finally got to. Um, but so that graduated, moved me into, I liked, I think I liked kind of spy, mystery, uh, supernatural like Stephen King, early Stephen King, um, a lot of those kinds of authors. Um, it's very, it's almost impossible for me to pick a f- favorite book at this point. <laughs> I'm the same way. I have a hard time picking an absolute favorite. I have to categorize things even within movies like, okay, of this type of movie, this is my favorite of that type. And yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's really weird because I could show you a shelf where I've got keepsake books that impacted me for one reason or another. It impacted me. And yet I can't say that was my favorite book. And in my house, we have a difference between it sounds silly, but a difference between what we call films and what we call movies. Mm. So a film would be like Citizen Kane. (laughs) And I might watch it once every three, four, five years or something. But a movie is something that we just go back to again and again for the sure the sheer pleasure of it. Not because of intense artistry, mm-hmm. but but just because it's well done and it was a good story. 
I mean, we can, in my family, we can easily watch the original, the three Lord of the Rings. I mean, we could watch those, you know, uh, once, at least once a year. We do watch it at least once a year, sometimes twice. Mm -hmm. And then there are other go-to movies that I have no problem putting on, enjoying, no matter how long it's been since I last watched them. So um, it's funny, whereas I always consider films, you know, films are the artistic top 10 best ever made, you know, but I only watch it once every five years. Yeah, Yeah. there are certain movies that are like, I'll rank them as some of my favorite movies, but I can't watch them enough. Like E.T., that makes me an emotional wreck. Babe makes an emotional wreck out of me, too. (laughs) <laughs> and there's certain movies that I'm like, even though I really enjoyed it, it was amazing to watch. I'm only ever going to probably watch it one time, like Saving Private Ryan or even The Passion of the Christ. It was too much for yeah. me, and I appreciate that I sing it, but I was like, I can't do that again. <laughs> you know, but if you were to pin me down on, in terms of a movie, film, big impact that I have no problem going back to, and that's It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, yes. The influence of It's a Wonderful Life on my writing and on my life is is beyond description, to be honest. Um, it just shows up everywhere, whether I mean for it to show up or not. <laughs> uh, that's the impact that, that that film had. Yeah. That's a film movie. It's both. Yeah. So like Casablanca, where it's it's kind of both, because I can watch that one. Yeah, I, I haven't exactly. watched that in that's a while, but they're, whole that's, movies are some of the best movies. That's coming out next month on 4K, and I'm really looking forward to seeing oh, it. Oh, if only I had a 4K TV. <laughs> oh, well, I, I'm a, a big advocate for 4K yep. because what I love about 4K is that it restored the movie, the film aspect to what you see on the screen. Um, so DVD, you know, it's just great to have the clarity yeah. Uh, yeah. without the you know, the VHS glitching thing. And then when they moved into Blu-ray, there was more of an obsession with with detail, and sometimes the detail worked against the filmic quality. You were seeing things you weren't supposed to see. I remember watching a movie where you actually had makeup line. You could see the makeup <laughs> line on the neck. You know, or if you watch the Blu-ray of Schindler's List, you can see the netting on Ben Kingsley, Kingsley's um, uh, toupee. Mm. The little net, you can see it. It's distracting. It's it's more detail than I think Spielberg intended. Well, then when you watch a, a Schindler's List on 4K, every now and again, the lighting will betray it a little bit. But what you see is what you saw on the screen when it first came out. Mm. It, you see mm. the film quality of, of how it, it was truer to what it looked like when it was made than the snap, crackle, pop that sometimes they try to do with Blu-ray. Yeah, that so does remind that's, me. That's my advocacy. A <laughs> couple of different things when, they, when they've when they highlighted things. Uh, I remember when uh, it was the 20th anniversary of Beauty and the Beast, and they, they made an IMAX edition. Yep. Yes. And I remember seeing it and watching Gaston fall from the tower and then just suddenly disappear before he actually hit anywhere. <laughs> He's just gone, yes. which you're not supposed yes. to see, but it was so large. And then uh, the yeah. 30th anniversary of Ghostbusters, when they, they digitally enhanced it, trying to fix it all, the flaws and the effects would really show up. But, you know, I, I still yeah. didn't ruin my enjoyment of the movie. It's still just a Yeah, delight, I mean, so. you, you, you kind of look past it. But then when you go back to the 4K and you see, well, funny, I don't feel like I'm missing any of the detail, but the weird stuff is gone. And it's because it was a film that was not 
pixelate. It was a film. And so the look of it was is far more, I guess the way to put it is 4K just takes it back to looking natural, hmm. the way it was meant to look. And that's what I love about that. You, it's a Wonderful Life is out in 4K. And it's beautiful. You know, you don't even dare call a movie like that black and white because somehow it's not just black and white. You know, the depth of the depth of shading and everything that they mm. use for black and white movies comes out. That's why I'm looking forward to seeing Casablanca. Yeah, it's not uh, 4K. That's going to be amazing. So now I'm curious, too, because I've got most of my movies. Uh, I'll, I'll buy the Blu-ray or whatever, but then you take the code over into Voodoo and whatnot. But right. you, you get a 4K version there. And I'm like, well, now if only I had a 4K yeah. TV, I'd be able to see. But now yep. I'm curious. Well, if I get a 4K what, TV. For what you do, you, you should definitely get yourself a 4K TV. <laughs> yes, I should. Especially since I work in television. Though uh, we make ads yes. in HD, so we're yeah. not up to 4K yet because it's a, it's a smaller area up there through St. Joe, Missouri. So. Oh, okay. So yeah, anytime I get 4K to work with on an ad, I always have, you know, like with stock footage, I always have to shrink it down. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it's like, we're only doing 1080 here, okay? So yeah. Yeah. Makes a yep. big difference. But anyways, uh, oh, the other thing, of course, I always like to ask you guys is, did uh, did you get to grow up hearing any old radio drama or, or working in it? Has it gotten you interested in some of the old radio shows of the past? Well, I was aware of them, um, but not as an avid listener. I actually, and I... I keep forgetting that when I was like fifth, sixth grade, I actually had access to a small reel-to-reel with its own microphone. And I I actually was creating my own little radio dramas. It's sound effects and doing things, you know, like we're on the spot kind of thing and, and doing and and I'm here at <laughs> I'm here at the at the base of Big Ben. And then I, you know, kind of reach over and play the chimes on the piano. You know? <laughs> and, and so I, I played with that. It was later on, um, I was interested in probably the legacy more than avid listening, you know, uh, to, to hear. I mean, my wife is English and she introduced me to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, wow. And, and so I was, but before that, it wasn't straight radio drama. It was actually um, a rather drug-induced comedy team called Firesign Theater mm. that made records late 60s into the 70s. And some of them I listened to and loved. And they were like drug-induced audio dramas, basically, but made for record. And it's wonderful because Phil Proctor was a member of that team. Mm. We then later brought him into Adventures in Odyssey to play various characters, and I loved working with him and could readily give him credit that from, from my point of view, where I was, I can't speak for anyone else, his work and the work of that team was huge. The other influence, by the way, for me were were rock albums. Pink Floyd's The Wall. Um, there were, I would listen to especially concept albums, uh, Pink, early Pink Floyd, the way they use sound effects, the effect that they got sonically also weighed into and has influenced um, my thinking about audio drama and how I approach it, um, which sounds a bit weird and is a bit weird. <laughs> uh, but I would go back and, and listen to some of the old old ones, uh, uh, The Shadow and some of the mystery ones. Yep. Of course, 
you can't do what we do and not go back and listen to the original War of the Worlds. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that caused. And I, I found that fascinating. But I think and I think Phil and I, especially early on, would compare notes on what influenced us. And a lot of times what influenced us wasn't audio drama. It was TV and other influences. But we would then say, but how do we take what that did and make it work in the audio realm? How can we achieve the same emotional effect, the same suspense, the same comedy? I mean, because Phil, Phil was a huge fan of of uh, the comedians that mm-hmm. did album. I, I was Firesign Theater, but you know, he he had a ton of others that would do things with sound effects outrageously. You know, the the whole thing of unplugging pulling the plug out of the bottom of a uh, of a lake and you hear it drain <laughs> you know and phil's point early on was if you'd made a movie of this you, you'd spend a fortune trying to do the special effect whereas with audio the imagination fills it in mm-hmm. your plug pop you hear the drain thing and you hear a guy in a boat sitting at the bottom of the lake just talking in this big echo and your brain tells you I don't know how he did it, but he unplugged the lake and it's drained, you know. So the magic of that, I think, again, it's unfair for me to speak for Phil, but I think we were both enamored by how we could create that kind of magic in the realm of Odyssey and have little magic moments in the context of what we want to say everyday life. Mm Mm-hmm didn't have to be big spectacle it, it's the magic that happens in everyday life situations you just have to be aware of yep and then everybody gets to imagine what everybody looks like and yeah. what how, how they interact and well uh, we, we got to wrap this up it looks like okay but everybody we've been speaking with paul mccusker who is a uh, what rank of writer would you be are you like a head writer and i think at some point you were a well, showrunner yeah even, i came you? on phil and i were the original writers um and we always we all of us kept switching hats, and we still do. Uh, so at various times, I was—I mean, if you wrote it more often or not than not, you directed it. So we were all writer directors. But um, at various, I went through a period as producer, and then another period as executive producer, and you know, so we all trade trade responsibilities. So I've been a little bit of everything. And every once except, in a while, a character. Except a good actor. Yeah, I was going to say, I've been everything except a good actor. Yeah. But that's a whole other story. Yeah. For anyone who goes and listen to Philip Glossman there, the, uh, yeah. the kind of rotten guy in the city council. Yeah. Yeah. And I keep complaining that it's the only voice I have. So my advice to anybody is that they're going to play a bad guy, come up with a different voice. Because I actually got a message through the website just last week from someone writing to say, oh, love love what you've been doing, love all the writing, you know, love your stories. I still hate your voice, but I love your work. Uh, (laughs) So it's the only voice I have. What am I going to do? It works well for Philip Glossman because he doesn't sound sinister or anything or really conniving. He just sounds like the average guy. He's just doing stuff that seems to be harmful to wit's end. Well, Phil (laughs) Phil finally confessed that when they talked me into playing, because I'm not an actor and I didn't want to do it, That my my version of the story is that I was an early that I was supposed to be a placeholder. Mm. It's like, oh, you're just filling in because we're going to replace you, you know. So, <laughs> you know, we'll isolate the track and then you just read it because we get another actor. 
But Phil, not too long ago, told basically we were doing an interview together, and he said, "Well, the truth is, I never planned to replace you." He said his intention was he, as he put it, he said, "I I had in the office I could get this sort of snide sound to my voice." <laughs> In a certain mood, at a certain way, at a certain time, I could get this sound. And um, he said, in his mind, that was Glossman. So, <laughs> so while I was thinking, look, I'll just fill this in and then it's done, then it wasn't because it goes out with my voice in it. So there's no replacing him. So that from that point on, I'm figuring out, how can I kill him? How can I get him on the show? You know, it's like, can I get him arrested? Can I... Can I send him out of the city in disgrace? What can I do to get him out of Odyssey so I don't have to do it anymore? You know, and then Phil admits that he just wanted to hear me do my snarky, snide <laughs> voice. It's like, well, that's fine, except it's my only voice. <laughs> uh, well, it's been good having you on the show. Thanks for coming yeah, thank on. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate and, it. Uh, Hope to hear a lot of fun things happening for the 35th anniversary and that maybe we get another 35 years out of it. Yeah, me too. I'd like to find out what they're going to do with all that. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at some point you're going to be like, okay, I got to retire. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. Whatever, buddy. Paul McCusker. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Now, as we wrap up this week's show, I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Also, we want to thank Karen Kennedy, Ricky Pope of Christian Nerds Unite, and Darren Wilhite of the Wilhite and Wall Show for helping me out with the intro to the show. Don't forget to get in touch with us at podcast at neverlandpodcast.com. Find us on Twitter, NeverlandPCast, Facebook at Neverland Podcast. Also, we do have a group and a fan page on, uh, under Neverland Podcast. You can join our Neverlanders at NeverlandPodcast.com. You can choose your nickname, become a Lost Boy or a Pixie. Find all that on the website. And please, please, please go to Patreon.com slash Neverland Podcast. That's where you can find video with more content of my interview with Paul McCusker than what I've shared here in the audio. So go and check it out. It is a patron exclusive, and you can join for just a dollar a month. And now, thanks for coming, but get lost. In an adventure! We'll see you next week. Credit card bill. 
After the holidays, a little cash goes a long way. The Chime checking account has tons of benefits to help, like fee-free overdraft up to $200 for eligible members, no monthly fees, and thousands of fee-free ATMs. You can even get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. Sign up for Chime today at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. Access to direct deposits up to two days early depends on the timing of the submission of the payment file from the payer.